Welcome to another episode of Science Horror. Today's story concerns an ill-fated Himalayan expedition in the early 20th century. The expedition attempted to discover the source of a curious glow on the mist-shrouded east flank of an obscure mountain. Only two members of the expedition returned, or possibly three, depending on how you count them. All our stories are fictional and written by myself. I have to say that. If I don't, they... Well, but enough said. There now follows an account from our archives by the legendary mountaineer, George W. Hastings. I first learned of the existence of F3 in 1897. At first, it did not especially excite my attention. It was only a distant mountain marked on a map by a bored surveyor. I gave it no further thought until my friend G. Stepford brought back photos of the mountain. From the moment I saw those photographs, the mountain seized my imagination. His descriptions of the lower slopes only intensified the fever. That night, I dreamed of the mountain. In my dream, we were trekking up the lower slopes. The whole effort had a magical feel to it. We knew we were heading towards something singularly spectacular. We hiked steadily, sometimes using the ropes and ice picks, until we reached the zone that Stepford had dubbed the Field of Clouds. This was a ring of fog that entirely surrounded the upper reaches of the mountain. According to the locals, it had never been observed to dissipate, and it obscured the summit entirely. However, there were scientific reasons for believing that at least part of the upper east flank was likely not covered in fog. And most intriguing of all, a strange golden glow was frequently observed to emanate from exactly that area of the peak. In my dream, we strode enthusiastically into the fog and found that the rock there was covered with many curious flowering plants, in spite of the extreme altitude, a thing generally considered impossible by scientists at the time. Eventually we found a distinct path, a trail no less, which appeared to lead to the putatively fog-free area of the peak. With what sublime joy our expedition followed that impossibly high trail, and then I woke up. I was to have that dream over and over again. I lost count of how many times. Sometimes I only visited the lower slopes in my dream. On other joyous nocturnal occasions, I reached as far as the trail. Always I thought the same thing. It's real, it's all real. Then of course I woke up and realized it wasn't real at all. 
Still, the mountain existed and there was a real mystery about that hypothetically fog-free area with its curious golden glow. I knew I would know no peace until I investigated the mountain as thoroughly as possible. Stepford proved more than willing to assist me in getting up an expedition. We were able to secure funding from a wealthy patron and we acquired four other men. Blake was a hard-nosed mountaineer of the old school. He had pretty well covered the Alps and even had some experience of the Urals. Smith was a bit of a dreamer, but he had spent many years in India and he would prove an invaluable guide. He was also an expert photographist. Then there was Morris, the youngest of our group at 26. He had very little experience but plenty of enthusiasm. He was, on the other hand, something of an athlete and superbly fit. Finally, there was Johnson, the least experienced of the six of us. By trade, he was a surveyor and walked hills in his spare time, but he had no real experience of mountains. You have to understand, in those days mountaineering was the fringe of fringe pursuits. There were no professional climbers, and experience wasn't always thought necessary. F3 wasn't thought to be particularly challenging, it was simply that no one had been up there before. The only real difficulties we anticipated were the business of actually getting there, dealing with the fog and the uncomfortably high altitude. Almost nothing was known at the time about the effects of oxygen deprivation and it's clear now that we were blasé about it in a way that no one would be today. It's a curious fact that humans cannot sense oxygen levels. As we now know, craving for air occurs only due to the brain sensing acidity levels in the blood, which can increase due to a build-up of carbonic acid. This then is what triggers the desire to breathe, not low oxygen. Under conditions of low oxygen, a person may become apathetic and insensate without even realising it. We were not adequately prepared for this at the time. We didn't appreciate the need to acclimatise to high altitudes gradually. We had no bottled oxygen. We set off in August of the following year. We had arranged for our supplies to be shipped to Bombay. After that, we would trek across land for over a thousand miles via railway and on foot. We arrived at the foothills of the great Mount Satapanth in September. From there, it was necessary to travel a further 200 miles to reach the mysterious unnamed F3. At this point, Johnson became ill, suffering headaches and nausea. After several days, he recovered significantly, but was left rather weak and listless. After much discussion, it was decided that he would return to Bombay alone. We felt bad about it at the time, 
but the decision probably saved his life. The long journey doubtless served to prepare us significantly for the altitudes we would face, although we made it only out of necessity. We were exhausted when we arrived at the tiny village that lies at the base of F3. The villagers there were high-cheeked with light brown skins. They were welcoming and happy to assist us with food and lodging for a small fee. At the start, it seems there was a felicitous misunderstanding. They believed we had come merely to photograph the surrounding area. They were greatly impressed by Smith's photographic apparatus. When they learned of our true object, their demeanour changed. From what I could gather, their name for the mountain was Sagraroth, or that's as near as I can render it in English. They considered it holy, but also dangerous. They believed that Shiva, the destroyer, lived on top of that mountain. Shiva would not take kindly to any invasion of his sacred abode. Primitive superstitious nonsense, said Blake, when we explained the matter to him. Superstition or not, there appeared to be a very real danger of the villagers turning on us. We judged it expedient to leave the village immediately. As we left, a dozen of them assembled in a crowd behind us. I believe we were saved from violence only by their belief that any association with us could destroy them. They didn't want to be anywhere near us. We observed them making a curious symbol with their hands consisting of extending three fingers with the ring finger curled. It's the sign of death, said Smith. You mean they want to kill us, said Blake. I've already understood that much. Not only that, said Smith. They believe our souls are doomed and our efforts will bring misfortune upon our entire folk. I expect they'll warm up to us when we come back down again, said Stepford, ever the optimist. The approach to Sagraroth lay through a narrow, rocky pass with tall cliffs on both sides. Not until we emerged from the pass in the evening did we catch our first sight of Sagraroth itself. I had seen it only in black and white photographs taken from an entirely different angle, yet it was exactly as I had seen it in my dreams. The mountain was a sprawling, jagged thing of grey stone and snow, the summit covered entirely in a diaphanous fog that formed curious fingers and trails as the wind blew it to the east. Behind the mountain, to the same side, stars were already beginning to appear. The rays of the setting sun caught the fog streams and illuminated them majestically. On the lower slopes the vegetation seemed surprisingly thick. I was sure I could see trees, which had no business growing at that altitude and under those conditions. 
best set up camp here, said Blake. It was after the sun had sunk well below the mountain range, and we were finishing the assembly of the tents that we saw it. A curious golden glow on the east ridge, seemingly coming from the very depths of the fog. What is it? whispered Morris, awestruck. That's what I hope to find out, I replied. It's catching the sun's rays from below the mountains, suggested Smith, but none of us were convinced. The angles seemed all wrong. The following day the plan was to set out as soon as the sun came up, aiming to reach the frost line before midday. There we would camp before attempting to locate the source of the curious glow. The summit was of secondary importance to us, but we would attempt it if we had the time, resources and stamina. Our plan hit a major hitch before we'd even eaten breakfast. Morris began vomiting uncontrollably. I told you we shouldn't have brought him, said Blake, to no one in particular. Stepford told him to keep a lid on it and tended to Morris with tea and soup, but Morris could keep nothing down. We then began a lively discussion over what to do next. Blake was for leaving Morris with a tent and some supplies and picking him up on the way back. I was hopeful that Morris would improve if we waited an hour or two. After all, we'd just slept on the side of a mountain and hadn't had tea since six the night before. Smith said he was developing a headache and would just as soon stay and look after Morris if the rest of us intended to press on. That more or less settled it since Stepford and I had become wary of Blake's temper and didn't want to go on only with him. Accordingly, we decided to wait there a whole day and see if Morris improved. That night, my recurring dream came back to me even more vividly than ever before. This time, I made it halfway along the curious path above the fog, before waking in a terrible sweat. As always, the dream was accompanied by a sense of carefree exuberance, almost euphoria. It was quite clear, even from scientific considerations, that there could be no such path, at least not as it appeared in my dream, surrounded by flowers, trees and other vegetation. We were too high for that, and yet my subconscious mind apparently wasn't deterred by considerations of mere reality. I fell back into an uneasy sleep. The next day, I awoke feeling groggy and a little dizzy. Taking my temperature, I discovered I had a light fever, which I attributed to the altitude and lack of oxygen. Morris hadn't improved much and Smith's headache was worse, but Morris said he'd rather try to climb than sit around being sick all day, so we resolved to continue up the mountain. Blake seemed lost in thought. He sat on a rock, gazing blankly into space, 
and couldn't be persuaded to take breakfast. You've got to keep your strength up, man, said Stepford jauntily, but Blake appeared not to hear him. He repeated himself and Blake seemed to finally snap out of it and barked, later, at us. Accordingly, we set off, Morris periodically overtaken by dry heaves and Smith clutching his head. Blake was leading the way and after three hours it struck me that he wasn't going the right way at all. Blake, I said, this surely can't be the best route. Do you have a better idea? He said irritably. Yes, as a matter of fact I do, I said. How about that way? I pointed over to the east. The summit's this way, said Blake, pointing up into the fog. We agreed to research the east flank first, Blake, I said. That seemed to shock him. For a moment he seemed entirely nonplussed. Then he pulled himself together and said, Yes, of course, I just wanted to get a bit higher before heading east. That explanation made no sense to me, and I had the distinct sense that he'd made it up on the spot. Even so, we carried on towards the summit for a good half a mile, just so he could save face. Then we changed course towards the east. Shortly after that, we entered the fog. Ordinarily, to carry on under those conditions would have been suicide, but this is exactly what we had trained for. For countless hours, we had wandered about on hills and moors in the thickest fog we could find, dotting our way with spots of luminous paint or stringing out long threads of twine behind us. We believed we had perfected fog navigation on mountains as much as anyone could. Of course, the altitude made the business far more precarious. We were determined to turn around if no clearing in the fog presented itself by nightfall. The fog was curiously warm in spite of the altitude, and that helped a lot. Stepford had an explanation for it involving volcanic activity, although all previous surveys and scientific study had suggested there was no significant volcanic activity in that region. A surprising quantity of vegetation surrounded us, apparently nourished by the fog, even a few trees. Stepford was entranced and wanted to stop every few minutes to gather samples, but Blake sensibly insisted we keep up the pace. Both Smith and Morris were becoming progressively weaker, and I was beginning to suffer from nosebleeds. At certain points, Blake seemed mentally absent, but then he'd seemed to snap himself back together again. Around three in the afternoon, we emerged from a couloir with a gradient of about 50 degrees to an astonishing sight. We found ourselves at the edge of a plateau that was miraculously free from fog. Only a few thin strands of mist persisted even more incredible, the whole thing was covered in grass, mosses 
and flowers of unknown types, and resemble nothing so much as a Swiss meadow. To be clear, that grassy oasis high on the mountain was impossible. It could not exist, not at that altitude. We were looking at a thing that appeared to defy the conventional laws of biology and physics. Under other circumstances, I might have hailed it as a miracle, but as things were, I was more inclined to see it as an unnatural portent of evil, a work not of God, but of Lucifer, or perhaps Shiva. We barely had time to marvel at it when Smith collapsed, moaning and clutching his head. We tried to help him, but he abruptly went into a series of epileptic seizures, his bloodshot eyes rolling horribly back in his head. Morris noticed there was blood oozing from his ears. The seizures went on for perhaps five minutes, after which he stopped breathing. There was nothing we could do. He was dead. Oh well, he knew the risks, said Blake. Let's press on. Rather than chastise him, I chalked his blasé attitude up to altitude sickness. We can't just leave him here, I said. We can hardly drag him all the way back down again, said Blake. I knew he was right. We were all weak, and lowering him down the trickier spots would have taken more energy than we possessed. Supposing we had got him down the mountain, what then? It was a substantial trek to the village, and Smith's body would decompose horribly in the sun. Neither could we feel assured of any further help from the villagers. Very well then, said Stepford, taking charge. We'll bury him here. We set to work digging a shallow grave, acutely conscious of the absurdity, even impossibility of the situation. There was soil here, where there shouldn't be any soil. Were it not for the thinness of the air, we could have fancied ourselves on holiday in some Austrian mountain resort. We had just finished digging the grave when Morris began vomiting blood. I'm all right, he said, as he wiped the blood from his mouth with the back of his hand. He's fine, said Blake, and I noticed that Blake appeared to be swaying slightly, as though dizzy. Stepford seemed absorbed in thought. He jumped when he realised I was looking at him, waiting for an opinion. After all, he was the nominal leader of our expedition, not Blake. Not much choice, really, he said. Well, we could go back down again, I said. Morris began to laugh, spitting flecks of blood as he did so. The strange thing was, I knew at the back of my mind that we should go back down. Morris was in a terrible condition. Blake seemed to be deteriorating mentally, and I wasn't sure about Stepford either. I was having enormous difficulty formulating my thoughts. At the same time, I really didn't want to descend. I wanted to find the source of that orange glow. 
And so it was that we continued, striding across that absurd meadow, making our way around the mountain. After about 400 yards we came to the edge of the plateau. There, framed by rocks and of all things, pine trees, was the path from my dreams. I've long since pondered how this was possible. I could have dreamed of this path and then found it in reality via some staggering coincidence. But the amazing thing was that it appeared in reality exactly as it had in my dreams. The only logical explanation is that some derangement of mind caused me to insert the real path into the memories of my dreams, confusing the two. I wished to God that I had been good at drawing, since then I might have sketched the dream version of the path before encountering it in reality, and Blake, Morris and Stepford could have verified that the sketch really did match reality. The path looked for all the world as though someone had artfully constructed it, but that was impossible. It must have been a natural formation of some sort, perhaps formed by some ancient larval flow. One side of the path was hemmed in by a cliff, rising to the summit. On the other side there was a steep drop with numerous scrubby pines and shrubs clinging to the top of it. The path itself was remarkably clear. Nothing grew on it. Nothing obstructed our way. Walking along it, flanked by trees and flowers, it was almost impossible to shake the conviction that we were back in Europe, out on a pleasant hike in the countryside. After half an hour of following this narrow, gravelly road, Stepford suddenly said, I say chaps, is there a pub anywhere around here? I'd kill for a pint of bitter. I looked at him and knew somehow that he wasn't joking. His eyes were bloodshot and unfocused and appeared to be looking in different directions. I took him gently by the shoulder. We're on a mountain in India, Stepford old man, I said. There's no pub. He looked at me with his mouth hanging open. No, of course not, he said. Then he fell over backwards, and before I could catch him, he was gone, down the side of the mountain and into the bank of cloud below. Morris began to laugh, more blood dribbling out of his mouth. Blake stepped to the edge and looked down, swaying like a tree in a high wind. Stepford, he shouted, if you find a pub, I'll have a pint of mild and a pork pie. You've both gone mad, I said, we have to go down again. Blake rounded on me angrily. I'll hear no talk of going down, he said, as God is my witness, if you say one more word about going down, I'll throw you down there myself and you'll have your desire. The situation was pretty clear to me. Due to the extreme altitude, Blake had lost his mind, and Morris wasn't far off either. The only possible course of action seemed to me 
to humour Blake and carry on. If possible, I'd get Morris away from him and persuade him to descend with me, leaving Blake to his fate. Better one more dead man than three. As you wish, I said. The fact is that I was starting to wonder about my own sanity, which was more likely that an alpine meadow existed in India at this altitude, complete with a veritable garden path, or that I had gone insane due to oxygen deprivation. The latter seemed the more probable hypothesis by far. And so we continued following the path around the summit, Morris giggling insanely and Blake muttering imprecations to himself. Small lizards scattered out of our way as we walked, and sometimes tiny golden birds fluttered off as we approached, or so it appeared. After ten minutes, we rounded a corner and the path straightened out. At the end of it, we could see a powerful orange glow. From the base of the mountain, filtered through the fog, it had appeared gentle and diffuse, but now it appeared fierce and bright. Volcanic activity, I said, has to be. Neither of them paid me any attention, except Morris burst into another peal of laughter. We were three quarters of the way towards it when Morris suddenly grasped my arm. I don't want to die, he said. There were tears in his eyes. The laughter was gone. You're not going to die, I said, with as much conviction as I could manage. His appearance was shocking, what with the blooded mouth, bloodshot, unfocused eyes, and pale bluish lips. I noticed something else, too. His face was burned as if by the sun. We all had deep tans from our travels, but none of us were burnt quite like that. This was something new. His face was covered in small blisters. Blake turned round to see why we'd stopped and I saw that his face was in much the same state. Also part of his beard seemed to be in the process of detaching itself from his face. My mind was so fuzzy that I wasn't completely sure what I was really seeing by that point. Perhaps it was all hallucination. Stay here for all I care, he said. I'm going to look at that orange thing over there. He was slurring his words as if drunk. We're coming, I said. We trudged the last few hundred yards in silence, Morris clutching my arm. I could feel him shaking and swaying. All the mirth was gone from him. Blake appeared grimly resolute. Finally, we arrived at the end of the path and could gaze down into the source of the glow. An opening in the mountain about the size of a church door radiated an orange light so intense that I could hardly look into it. There was warmth, but no great heat. Weird lights flickered and darted about inside, perhaps some strange electrical effect. 
I felt a metallic taste in my mouth. Blake stood looking in, his hands clutching the top of the opening. Then he turned around and stepped away from it. Morris, go in and report back, he said drunkenly. No one's going in there, Blake, I said, horrified. I said, go in and report back, he roared. I barred Morris's way with my arm. No one's going in there, I repeated. We've no idea what it is. Very well, said Blake, and he walked into the opening. He paused after a few paces, and orange lights seemed to flicker over him. Then he abruptly turned and walked out, and without even looking at us, walked straight over the cliff edge before we could stop him. My mind was so befuddled that I felt as though I was in a waking nightmare where anything might happen at any moment. All I could think of to do was to turn to Morris and say, let's go down. About time, said Morris, and he too walked briskly into the malignant orange glow, disappearing into the inner recesses of the thing before I even had time to properly react. I began to follow Morris, hoping to pull him back, but at the entrance of the orange void, I was overcome by a violent attack of vomiting, and my head began to swim. I knew then that I could not save him. Probably he was already dead. I turned and walked back along the path as briskly as I could manage. How I made it down the mountain, I don't know. The whole thing is a blur in my mind. It's like trying to recall a bad dream. I can remember only fragments of it. I vaguely recall staggering through the meadow and I remember having a terrible time finding our markers in the fog. I believe I made it back to the village in under 18 hours, progressing feverishly ever downwards like some deranged animal, the only thought in my mind to get off that mountain. When I arrived at the village, I initially scared some children with my hideous appearance. My skin was apparently deeply burned, and the whites of my eyes hardly distinguishable from the surrounding skin. The children fetched adults, and although they too initially seemed to think me a ghost or demon, some brave woman recognised the shell of a human being and strode forward to render help. Then others followed. I was in a fever for two months. My nightmares from that time are as real to me as my waking hours, and I can't be sure of any of it. I think I remember some sort of local doctor forcing me to drink a foul-tasting bitter liquid over and over again. At first I fought him, but I believe I eventually realised the liquid was doing me some good, and I decided to swallow it as best I could. I must have started to appear somewhat improved around that time because after that I distinctly remember soup and eventually rice and bread. 
Gradually, I regained my sanity, and three months after I had arrived, I rode out of there on a yak, thanking them profusely, and leaving them with whatever few things I still had with me that I thought might be of use to them. Eventually, I reached Lucknow, and I was able to get on a train bound for Delhi. Back in Oxford, I had to deal with the matter of the families of the deceased men. That was a horrible business. Once I'd done with it, I began to look for explanations. I didn't find any. Five years later, news reached me of a terrible earthquake in that very region. The earthquake had been so terrible, according to the best sources, that F3, Sagraroth, had completely disappeared. An entire mountain levelled in a monumental convulsion of the Earth's crust. Was such a thing even possible? Later information seemed to confirm it, but I certainly wasn't going to go back and check. It was only much later, after the discovery of nuclear chain reactions, that Professor D. Whitstable was able to offer me a partial explanation. The mountain, he said, was a natural nuclear reactor. Somehow, powerful nuclear reactions had sustained themselves there, deep in the Earth's crust, radioactive effluence rising to the surface through a kind of pyroduct or larval tube. Heat from the nuclear reactions had warmed the mountain, creating fog but also allowing life to thrive near the vent, life that had doubtless grown resistant to the radiation over eons. Finally, an earthquake had rearranged things, and the whole thing had gone into some kind of meltdown, never to be seen again. The path was probably of natural origin, caused by a historic outflowing of radioactive lava, or perhaps some forgotten civilization had built the path, and the side of the mountain had since been pushed further out of the ground by immense pressure from beneath. Between the high altitude and the radiation, I must have been very lucky to come back alive. There still remains one curious aspect of the affair that has completely defied all explanation. About seven years after my return from the expedition, I received a letter from New Zealand. The letter purported to be from none other than Morris. It mentioned facts about the expedition that only Morris could have known, if my memory is to be trusted. I have the letter in front of me now, and I intend to file it with the National Archives. According to the letter, after entering the glowing cavity, Morris had found himself in some kind of vortex, spinning around and crackling with orange electrical sparks. Then he had blacked out, and when he came to, he found himself lying in a forest in New Zealand suffering from some degree of memory loss. A family there had looked after him, thinking him some sort of simpleton, but gradually he had recovered his mind, 
He had worked for some time on the family's farm, but had finally secured a position at the University of Auckland, at the geology department, and that's where he remains to this day. If you enjoyed this week's story, please devote the rest of your life to exploring the Himalayas. Also, if you could click the like button and subscribe, that would help me enormously. Thank you. My name's John, and you've been listening to Science Horror. New episode every Monday.